Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're finishing up in chapter 19 of Revelation, where we've been looking forward to Jesus' return to the earth as he begins to establish his kingdom and preside as both king and judge over all. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the word. So secondly, we saw the fiery eyes. He also describes Jesus as having many crowns, many crowns on his head. Now we previously discussed how, how crowns represent sovereignty and authority. And there are two types of crowns that are found in scripture. The first is the Stephanos. Stephanos is the Greek word that describes a victor's crown. It is what the, what the, the conquering hero or the games, the person who participated in, in the various Olympic kinds of games would receive at the end. And then there's also also the diadem, and the diadem is a royal crown and, and a crown of authority. And in this case, the crown being referenced is the latter. It is the crown of royalty and authority that he's referring to here. And by adding the word many, many crowns, it's speaking of Jesus' unlimited sovereignty and authority. Now, I find this interesting when contrasted with the crown that Jesus wore when he came the first time. Huh, think about that. What was that crown? He pressed that crown of thorns on his head, a, a crown that just spoke of torture and pain and really the humility of our suffering servant, Jesus. But this crown, when he comes, he isn't going to be the one that's suffering anymore. He's going to be wearing a crown of authority, and those who have rejected him will face suffering in that day. And this, again, just highlights the differences of responsibilities that Jesus is fulfilling, as we just talked about a couple of minutes ago. When he came the first time, he didn't come to, to enact his authority yet in, in dealing with, with fallen humankind. He came in mercy and grace and to suffer on our behalf. But when he comes the second time, he's coming with unlimited sovereignty and authority to enact judgment upon the fallen mankind who has not received that offer of grace that he's made to them. Picture is absolutely and perfectly clear as we look at it. Third, he describes Jesus having what? A name written that no one knew except himself. A name written that no one knew except himself. Now, there's a number of views as to what this means. First, the, there's the most prevalent view is that since names in that day conveyed a sense of meaning as to who and what a person was, only Jesus can fully and perfectly comprehend who and what he himself really is. Consider what Paul says about our knowledge of Christ in contrast to what, what he obviously knows about himself. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. You see, Paul hits on a real truth. No matter how much we think we've come to know who Jesus is, what we know of Jesus yet is still a, a shadowy understanding of him. It's enough that we need to be able to worship him and to serve him and to be saved by him and to love him. But yet Jesus, only Jesus right now, really fully understands and comprehends who and what he truly is. One day we'll see, but not yet. Only Jesus right now. Now, the other view is that some suggest that it has to do with many facets of what his name encompasses, such as those described by Isaiah, for example. You know what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 9, 6? Because he gives us a list of names for Jesus. 
He says this, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You see, it may be that that's what's being referenced here, that that it's the all-encompassing name of Jesus, and yet as we'll see in just a moment in the next verse, there is at least one name given that's known to us, a name that sums up all that Jesus is about. Number three, and yet others suggest that this might not be speaking about the name of Jesus per se, but that it's reflecting, or that it's referring to those who have come to faith in him. Now, when I say that, those who hold that view, what they believe is that the best interpretation of this verse is that he had names written and a name that no one knew except himself. The idea being that he knew the names of those who've committed their lives to him. You know, and only he fully sees and understands and knows that. Which of these views are correct? I don't rightly know, (laughs) but I like them all. And it could very well be that they're all true of what's being implied here. Only Jesus can comprehend the truth about himself in regard to who and what he really is. Jesus is identified through the scripture by various names that depict not just his character and his nature, but it conveys to us the roles and the responsibilities that, that he, he fulfills and holds and enacts as the tri, part of the triune Godhead that we don't fully even comprehend yet. And yes, he does have names written that no one knows except himself. Names that, as we're shortly going to see, are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Our names. Amen? So you choose. But personally, I like sticking with them all. So that's the easy way to get out of that one, isn't it? (laughs) Well, look on verse 13. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So now he continues on in this verse with even more descriptors that he he associates with Jesus. Number four, he describes him as being clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, whose blood is Jesus covered with? Most will quickly suggest that it's Jesus' blood that still remains as a reminder of his work on the cross. And I would say that while that makes sense, based on the fact that we know that Jesus had other things in the scriptures that remained that could be seen after his resurrection, right? We know from the scriptures that as he appeared to the disciples, and of course we had Thomas who was doubting, and he went to Thomas, and what does he tell him? He says, reach your finger here, you know, look at my hands. In other words, you can see the scars. You can touch him, in fact, he says, and, and put it into my side. So even where he was pierced still remained, you know. And he tells him, hey, don't be unbelieving, but believing. Revelation chapter 5 also refers to him in a way that indicates that there are things that remain from his work on the cross. Here's what Revelation 5, verse 6 and 7 told us. Revelation 5, verse 6, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Why would he say as though it had been slain? It, It clearly still had the markings of the death that had been suffered. And who was that lamb? It was Jesus. And so even John seeing it here, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the scroll out of my right hand of him who sat on the throne. And so clearly it's a depiction of Jesus. And he's saying, I could see one who had appeared as though he had been slain. Some will argue against such a notion. They'll make the case that no other scars seem to be associated with him. Like, what about his beatings? What about the torture he went through? How comes there's no marks on his head from the crown of thorns? Well, one would think that having endured the brutal torture that he went through, that some of those things would be there. But I'm not so sure 
that that's necessarily the case. It could be that he bears only the clearest reminders of, of the work that he did for us on the cross, specifically his body, which was pierced for us, and his blood, which was shed in order to satisfy the penalty for human sin. So it could be his own blood, as some believe that John is now seeing on his garments. However, it could also be different blood. It could very well be the blood of his enemies that John is now seeing. It could be that the blood represents the righteous judgment which he is about to execute against God-rejecting man on this earth. And folks, this will be a day of absolute terror and bloodshed for the God-rejecting peoples of the earth. There's no way around that. All of the horrific judgments that we've studied up to this point will not even hold a candle to what's about to happen as Jesus steps back onto the earth to execute righteous judgment. Trust me, it'll be worse than the, the, those moments that you feared, you know, when, when your mom would say to you, just wait till your father gets home. You know, it'll be worse than any of the moments that you've ever experienced, you see. Praise God, it's not us. It's not us. And I'd remind you again, it's good to know that as believers in Jesus Christ, we have no fear of these things. We are covered by his blood, but in that day, he will be covered in the blood of those who are not covered by his blood, just as happened in Egypt, right? The blood on the dwelling place enabled the angel to pass by. And yet, for those where the covering was not on, guess what? Their blood was shed. Number five, John gives us a name that he sees associated with Jesus that sums up everything that he is. What's he say? The word of God. The word of God. This is a name that's associated with Jesus throughout scripture. It's found everywhere, a, a name that we do know. That's the one name we absolutely do know because we're told, right? John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, John 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, by the way. It's, the Jehovah Witnesses have their translation wrong when they say that the Word was a God. No, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, it says. John chapter 1, verse 14. John 1, 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. 1 John 1, 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and these things we write to you that your Joy may be full. Jesus is the Word of God. As scriptures repeatedly declare it, He is the Word of God. He is both the written Word and He is the living Word of God. He is the written Word in the sense that the scriptures are all about Him, just as we originally established. They're all about Him. Jesus made that linkage clear. The scriptures fully reveal Jesus to us because He is and He is behind them all. And the Bible reveals Jesus to us if we, unlike the Pharisees, Look for him there as we study the scriptures. He's also the living word of God in the sense that in his physical existence, he is the full and complete expression of everything that God is about. Everything that God is, he's the full expression of it. He is the living representation of what God spoke in his word. Jesus' life comprises the word. So if you want to know Jesus, then guess what you got to get to know? 
the word of God, right? That's why this is important. That's why I don't understand why people gather and they don't study the Bible. How do you get to know Jesus apart from the Bible? Because that's where he's revealed to us. Well, look at verse 14. He says, And the armies of in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And I love this verse because John now sees and he describes these armies of heaven following Jesus. They're coming in behind him. Who are these armies? Well, though some might suggest that it's the angelic hosts, Scripture actually reveals that it's far more than just the angelic hosts. Revelation 17, 14 and an earlier foreshadowing of this same event specifically identifies a part of this army as being composed of the chosen and faithful. Here's what it says in Revelation 17, 14. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Referring to the same future event in history, Jude prophetically tells us that this army will be composed of a multitude of his saints, uh, Jude says in verse 14, Jude 14, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And some people say, well, he's only come with 10,000, so it can't be. You see, what it's referring to are the believers, right? The faithful and true, it's us. It's the believers. And some will say, well, he's only come with 10,000. No, that's not what it said in Jude. It says 10,000s. 10,000s meaning a limitless number is the implication. 10,000 upon 10,000 upon 10,000 upon 10,000. Every generation of believers who've gone on ahead, been raptured, coming back with him in that day. This is us. We're reading about us right now. We just don't know. It's one of those movies, you know, where you're looking at those movies where they're looking into the future as themselves. And it's like, that's me. This is a reality for us. It's not fiction. We're looking at ourselves. It is the raptured saints combined with the saints who have preceded us from every generation combined with the martyred saints of the tribulation combined with the angelic hosts. And we are all following Jesus in this long procession as his army as he comes to do battle with the Antichrist and with the false prophet and with all of those who've rejected his offer of peace and who have given themselves over to Satan. Even the apostle Paul makes it clear that this is us. Here's what Paul says in Colossians 3.4. Colossians 3.4 when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Some people think it's just talking about heaven. It's talking about this day, folks. When he appears, we're coming with him. And, and, and note how John describes us as being dressed. He says we're dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Fine linen, white and clean. You know, this, this is the garment of heaven. This is the uniform of heaven. We found the martyred saints in heaven wearing the same kind of robe in Revelation 7, 9 through 17. We found the 24 elders representative of the church wearing the same kind of robe in, in Revelation 4, 4. These are the, the garments of heaven because they depict the very things that are required to be in the presence of God in heaven. Purity and righteousness. That's what they speak of. Purity and righteousness, these are the things that are required, but which you and I can't provide for ourselves. We can't provide purity. We can't provide a garment of righteousness for ourselves. Only Jesus can do this for us. 
And that's why we're told repeatedly in the scriptures. Revelation 3, 5. He overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out, blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. They shall be clothed. Not meaning they're going to put it on themselves. He's going to provide it. Revelation 3, 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich in white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Buy it from him. Only from him can it be found. Now, that buy from him isn't intended in any way to convey that you must do something to get it except to receive the offer that he gives. But it's just an expression of speech. He's saying you're buying from the world. Why won't you turn to me and get this from me? Because I have the garments that you need. Romans chapter 4, verse 5 through 8. Romans 4, verse 5. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Do you get it? Uh, this is the sweetest verses in the Bible. I, I ask this, though, because a lot of people do not get this. There are a lot of people who think that they can clothe themselves with the garments that they need to stand in God's presence. But in reality, what they are clothing with themselves are nothing more than, than fig leaves, filthy rags that simply do not cover. If you want to be in this army when this day comes, then you have to be clothed in the proper uniform. I learned that from being in the army. The first thing you did is you went to the clothing issue facility, right? Those of you served, you remember that? It was like you held out your duffel bag and they put everything in there and they said, now take those grubby things off that you're wearing. You're going to start wearing this. You couldn't pick your own uniform. You couldn't say, well, you know what? I brought my own with me and that's not going to work long. You went through and you got the uniform. It's the same thing. We want the clothing that, and the uniform that only heaven can provide and that's provided through Jesus Christ, not through our efforts. Let's finish this up. Look at verse 15. It says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Number six, John describes seeing a sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. A sword. What exactly is this describing? Before I answer this, note several important things. Number one, this is similar to the description given to us of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 16 that we looked at. Revelation 1, 16. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. So we've already seen this in regard to Jesus. Second, in both of these cases, here in Revelation 1.16 and now here in this verse, the sword being referred to is a sharp Thracian battle sword, a heavy and a long two-edged, you ever watch those movies, that long, heavy two-edged sword, which, oh, by the way, could often be used like a spear. They would chuck that thing. Man, that's when men and people were just, man, they were just, you know, tough. They could chuck it like a sword. Now, Romans, Romans used that, 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 that sword to pierce their foes in, in heavy combat. That was the idea. This was not a defensive weapon. This was for heavy combat. Number three, elsewhere in the New Testament scriptures, there are different references to different types of swords. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, refer to a two-edged short sword, which was known as a gladius. 
and, and it was used for thrusting and stabbing in close quarters with the enemy. It could be used offensively, but a lot of times it was used in the defense when they had to and the enemy was upon them and they could begin to thrust with it. But in all cases, number four, in all cases, the sword is clearly connected to and symbolic of the word of God. It's symbolic of the word of God. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17 tells us that the word of God is the weapon that we're to use in close combat to defend against and to defeat the enemy as he comes at us, right? We're told in Ephesians 6, 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's made clear what it is. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 12 through 13 tells us of the penetrating power of the word of God. It tells us there, Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the vision of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Boy, that just brought in the fiery eyes, didn't it? Right there it is, too. Both of them together working its thing. Have you ever been the subject to the sword of the word cutting into your life? You know, some, maybe you guys, I've had people come up to me after service and said, how did you know that was going on? You know, why that verse you brought out there, did you know that was happening in my life? I had no clue. But you know what the Holy Spirit did? And what he did is he took that short Gladys and he stuck it in there, right into your heart. Not to kill you, but to cut out of you what needs to be cut out. Don't run from that. Just yield to that pain. It's good pain. It's good stuff. Revelation 1.16, and now here in our passage in Revelation 19, the sword coming from Jesus' mouth is symbolic of the conquering power of his word by which he's going to subdue his enemies when he comes. This is the battle. This is the one he's gone into with that huge sword. The, the clear implication is that when he, came, when he comes and he engages them in conflict, he won't need any kind of human weaponry. He'll simply consume them with the word which he'll be, which he'll be uttering against them. That's the idea. That Jesus is going to, his very word is going to be like that heavy Thracian battle sword. And Paul confirms that reality because in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, when speaking of this day, when Antichrist will ultimately be defeated, he says this, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. I have been around people who have destroyed me with the breath of their mouth, but it will not compare to what Jesus will be speaking. A simple word, the word of God, he's going to use it. He did it with Satan when he was being tempted, didn't he? He did it in a, in a, in a defensive way of, of just yielding and not yielding back to what Satan was trying to do. In this day, He's going to speak a word and his enemies are going to fall before him. This is what's going to happen. The word of God is a sword to be used now by us. And it's a sword which Jesus will use. And in that day, it is the most powerful weapon in the spiritual arsenal. I told you, let's finish with that. Let's finish with this. We will finish. Verse 16. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is a good verse to end on, isn't it? Because finally, John gives us one last description of, of something that he sees associated with Jesus. Here's what he says it is. Number seven, he sees a name written on, on, on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it's an appropriate name for Jesus, just as much as righteous and true was. 
is an appropriate name for Jesus to carry because he will be coming as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the sovereign over all creation and over all of heaven. And he will finally be coming to lay claim to all that is his. And he will establish his absolute rule over everyone and over everything. And as the previous verse told us, he will take his rightful place of rule with a rod of iron. That rod of iron is simply indicating that his rule will be unyielding, unbreakable. You don't break a rod of iron. It can't be broken once he imagines it. Just imagine this day when Jesus will be just reordering everything. I mean, he won't just be renovating things into some Christianized version of it, which is what Christians often have in mind. He's not just going to be renovating it into something. He's going to be replacing it with his system. Every form of government that presently exists on the earth will be eliminated and replaced by his government. And every king and every sovereign and every national leader on this earth will be replaced by him when this day comes. As one commentator said it so well, it does not mean the leavening of existence existing governments with Christian principles, the spiritual conversion of countries and empires, leaving them in existence and simply Christianizing them so as to exist, uh, to exhibit something of Christ's spirit in their administrations. But it means the total displacement of all this world's sovereigns and governments, the taking of all dominion and authority out of their hands and putting it in the hands of Christ as the true and only king of the world. He's going to bring in his kingdom when he's ready to do it. We're not making the world better. We're not here to, yes, as individuals, we want to do things that will make the world better. But when it comes to the gospel, we're not here to make the world better. We can't make the world better. We can't do it. We're here to provide the rescue for people from what is coming when he brings his judgment against this fallen world. We're here to provide the life preserver to share with them the way out, the escape route, the escape hatch. He'll come when that's over and he will establish his kingdom and we'll be in submission to him. Also note one other thing. Some translators suggest that the language being used here in the Greek actually suggests that this name is written on both his robe and on his thigh. But in actuality, it appears from a study of this that it may actually be saying that it's written on his robe and it extends from his robe right down onto his thigh. And beyond making this incredibly visible event so that everybody can see even as he's riding on the horse, it also would reflect how his rule extends in such a fashion that it's unbreakable. It's unbreakable. No one will be able to break his rule when he establishes it in this day because he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.